encourage you to uh, take your scripture and turn uh, with me, first of all, in the Old Testament. We're going to read from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, uh, and then we're going to turn over to the Gospel of John uh, chapter 20. We're going to be stepping out of the Gospel of uh, Matthew uh, this evening. We've been working through the uh, Sermon on the Mount uh, together, but in anticipation that uh, I knew this uh, past week, uh, we, Lisa and I, and Pastor Holtzlag and his wife would be attending the uh, Puritan Conference, um, uh, anticipating that we would be uh, encouraged uh, at that conference again to uh, return to uh, what matters most and uh, returning to the, to the Word and its focus on the glory of God and the face of Christ. Uh, I anticipated that um, uh, it'd be good for us to turn to a different passage of Scripture uh, tonight. And um, I, have, I have something like 13 sermons uh, welling up in my heart and mind that I've heard this past week. So I will reduce it to one sermon so that, so that I don't keep you here uh, to midnight. That would not be fair. But, uh, but it was a very encouraging conference, and uh, we signed up for that conference very early in the year, uh, knowing it was coming, and we were greatly encouraged. So I'm going to read from Ecclesiastes 12. Uh, And then we're going to John chapter 20. This is the word of the Lord. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they're few and Those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They're afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And then if you would turn over to uh, John chapter 20, and we'll be focusing on these words of the Gospel of John, verses 30 and 31. I think you know them well. John 20, verse 30. Whereas John comes near the end of uh, his Gospel account, uh, this is what he writes. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray uh, for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that as we uh, end this Lord's Day together, we can sing of you, our, our shepherd, and that we shall not want. Uh, and we thank you that you provide all that we need for us. And we thank you, Lord, most especially that you provide us your word. And in that word, uh, you provide us uh, knowledge and the truth of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So help us, Lord, tonight as we uh, focus on these uh, verses of Scripture. Lord, we know that it will remain, uh, it will remain outside of us and uh, uh, it will not penetrate within this heart of ours uh, unless you graciously, by your Holy Spirit, are at work in us and among us, even in this place. So help us, we pray, Lord, to know your presence as you speak to us through your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can imagine, at the uh, Puritan Conference this past week, uh, that um, it was a place uh, filled uh, with books. Uh, They had a whole, uh, of course, great uh, room uh, filled with uh, book tables from several different uh, publishers of, uh, of Reformed uh, works and theology and Christian life and so forth. And every time you would uh, stick your head in that room, you kind of hesitated to go in because, you know, the room was so full and there's people down this aisle and that aisle. And you figure, if I go in there, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get out. Um, and um, But it was a room full of books. In fact, there was over 2,000 people there. And uh, every one of the uh, attendees, as soon as we got there, found out that everyone was going to be sent home with, uh, with 10 free books. And so you figure out the math. That's, you know, let's say 2,500 people and uh, 10 books each. And so that's right, right off the bat, there's 25,000 books uh, going home. And many more were bought. Well, when was the last time that you read uh, a good uh, book? Now, books were once, of course, uh, rare, uh, expensive, uh, and treasured, uh, but now they're mass-produced, of course, they're cheap, uh, they're easily thrown away. Some people can't get enough of books, and some people wonder why we need all these books uh, in the first place. Uh, As you might know, one of my hobbies is to read about the American Civil War, And um, I have a growing uh, collection of books about Abraham Lincoln. And so let's say you wanted to read something about Abraham Lincoln, and you said to yourself, well, maybe I'll go to the A.K. Smiley Library to get out a book on Abraham Lincoln. And, well, you'd have a bit of a choice because you could probably access uh, interlibrary loan or something like that, and it's estimated that there's about 18,000 books about Abraham Lincoln. And so you could sit down and read all of those books, I presume. Uh, and uh, let's say you read them all, 18,000 books about Abraham Lincoln. Um, what would you have at the end? Well, I suppose you'd know Abraham Lincoln pretty well. Um, Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes uh, that of the uh, making of books, many books, there's no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. 
John will say at the end of this gospel in John 21, I don't know if you remember this verse, John 21, 25, John will say this. Now, there are also many other things. Just think about that. Many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them, says John, to be written, I suppose, says John, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That amazing? Many other things. Uh, But of course, uh, what John is concerned about in the gospel here and in these two verses we want to focus on is not what has uh, not been written, which is a lot, uh, but his concern is with uh, our access uh, to what has already been written and what has already been revealed. And so tonight we want to think about the, the what and the why and the wherefore of the book. What is this all about? And why uh, do we have to focus upon it so much? Well, first of all, the what. Listen to how John puts this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why we have the book. The question is, according to John, at the end of his gospel, uh, have we seen the signs? Now, perhaps you've had this experience, uh, as I have had. Maybe you're driving with a friend or a family member in the car, and you get into a good conversation, and you're chatting merrily along, when all of a sudden uh, you realize that you have missed your exit, and you've got you've to turn around, and you've got to go all out of your way, Um, to get back to where you need to go. And what's the first thing your backseat driver will say to you when you miss that exit? They will say something like, didn't you see the sign? I think somebody said that to me, actually, on Friday as we were coming home from the conference. I forget who it was, but somebody in our vehicle. Um, Sometimes we miss the sign. Sometimes we see a sign with our eyes, but our mind and thoughts are elsewhere, so we don't really see it. Um, sometimes, um, uh, sometimes our view of the sign is blocked by other traffic that gets in our line of sight. Uh, sometimes we need help understanding what the sign means, especially if you're from New Zealand. You need, you need help uh, to understand the signs here in America. I'm getting in big trouble, but that's okay. Um, you know, we need help. Or sometimes we insist, despite all the evidence, that there was no sign, right? So we'll say, oh, you missed the sign there, and you say, I, I didn't see it. There was no sign back there. Well, when it comes to who Jesus is, uh, the Bible ever and always, in place after place, tells us again and again and again that there is no lack of signs. And so in Acts 2.22, for instance, the Apostle Peter in his uh, sermon says this, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. God attested, this is my son. Many works and and wonders and signs. In our uh, midweek study, uh, we're looking at the book of uh, Hebrews, and I think just this past week, Jim led the study from Hebrews 2 that goes like this. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... 
and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And this is why. It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according uh, to his will. I wish I was there for the study. Um, you know, uh, how shall we escape if we neglect, says the author of the Hebrews, such a great salvation? Well, what makes it, why is there so much, uh, uh, such a warning there? Well, because there's been so much, so, mo- so many signs. So how can you neglect, says the author to the Hebrews, what is so obvious, specifically obvious about, about Jesus? Well, in the Gospel of John, you might remember, there are, are, are seven places, seven, seven episodes in the life of Jesus that are specifically called signs, you know, attesting to who he was. Richard Phillips, pastor in uh, South Carolina, uh, summarizes it this way. The signs were public miracles that attested to the truth of Jesus' deity turning of water into wine at the wedding of Cana, uh, the healing of the official son, the healing of the paralytic by the pool, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, his giving of sight to the man born blind, and the raising of Lazarus from the grave. Seven episodes in the life of Jesus in the Gospel of John that are called signs. And then, of course, there's all the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus as well. His death and resurrection, of course, are the greatest of signs of who Jesus is. Uh, The miracles, says Phillips, are called signs because of what they signify. They are significant in pointing the reader to God's offer of salvation in Christ. What God has recorded is sufficient to call us to confess Jesus together with Thomas, you'll remember, who said, My Lord and my God. Now, here's the thing. John wants us to know at least two things here. First of all, he wants us to know that Jesus did many other signs. Verse 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Some of them are not in John. Some of them are in the other three uh, gospel accounts. But some, uh, the Bible says, are not written at all. That's what John says at the end of this this book. if If I wrote everything... Uh, if a record was taken of, of everything that Jesus did and everything that Jesus said, I suppose, says John, uh, there, there wouldn't be enough, enough, uh, enough rooms in, in, in the world. Of course, he's speaking hyperbolically there. He's saying, but there, there's no end to, to what could be written of what Jesus has said and what he has done. In other words, he's saying to us, we're the hearers here, we're the readers here. In other words, there is much more Material, right? Imagine more stories of Jesus' love. More stories of uh, Jesus' grace and forgiveness and power and more stories of other times when Jesus confronted hypocrites. More stories of, of, uh, of Jesus healing people by simply a word or a touch. John says there is much more, I could say. But that's not here, says John. There is much more, but secondly, he wants us to know what I've given, what I've written already is to be uh, sufficient. And you don't need 
anymore. There is much more that could be said, but you don't need it because what has been written, the signs that have been written, uh, are themselves uh, sufficient. The evidence, he would say, is already overwhelming, these signs. Um, it's election time again, right? We've got signs uh, on, on our street corners, and uh, it's always funny sometimes when, you know, you might see one sign go up for somebody on a street corner, and then, of course, a sign for another candidate goes up on the same street corner. And then the next time you drive by, well, the first person who put up one sign now has two signs on that street corner. And then maybe the other person puts up three more signs, all the same name. And then another time, maybe there's like seven signs, all of the same person, same name, running uh, for the same office. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute, one sign? Okay, I get it. Uh, Two signs? All right, I understand. You're running for office. But seven signs? I don't need that many. I know uh, from the first. Do you really need 30 signs? Well, uh, John says there are many more not written, but there is enough here uh, for its purpose. So our focus, first of all, uh, is not to be on what is not written, says John, not on the unknown or the unrecorded, but what is right before us. That's important because, you know, sometimes, sometimes folks get fascinated, for instance, with secret gospels of Jesus or hidden records Uh, of Jesus' life, and we become fascinated with things we do not know while ignoring the things we do know, right? John says there's much more, and so we go to that. We say, ooh, and just like the, um, you know, just like the, uh, uh, just like the scientists and uh, astronomers and such, right, who, who ignore the word from God that we've been given, and this constant desire, oh, if we could only hear a word, you know, from outer space. If we listen really carefully, if someone would speak. And all the while, right, all the while, uh, the Bible tells us God has spoken. So we have to deal uh, with what is right before us, these signs. Well, uh, why are these signs given? Well, John tells us, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so uh, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So we don't know these other things. There's other things that could have been written, but these have been written, uh, says John, for a very uh, specific purpose uh, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, that's very helpful for us, because when we think about the why and the what and the wherefore of this book, the Word of God, here John says that all these things that have been written here in this gospel uh, is meant uh, for you to become convinced uh, about something about, about Jesus, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, that's helpful because, um, you know, John's saying here that, that the Bible comes to us, the Word of God comes to us. It doesn't come to us without a powerful uh, and purposeful reason that we would believe. The Bible is not given as a religious text to simply be studied like any other ancient manuscript. The Bible is not uh, given uh, as an educational tool to simply increase our knowledge of history or geography. 
It's not given to simply help us to live moral lives. No, 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 says John. Well, what is the purpose of the book? Now, if you ask somebody who's not a Christian, if you ask somebody um, from the world who does not believe in Jesus Christ, uh, as you know, no doubt, uh, well, it used to be, and maybe not so much today, used to be, now that someone who's not a Christian would say, well, the Bible is given because the Bible is a great, uh, it's a great story about a great teacher. And so even in, in secular universities, they would teach the Bible. Maybe they'd, they'd actually use the King James Bible because they'd say, well, the King James Bible is a great uh, book of literature to be studied alongside of Shakespeare and uh, beautiful language that we find there. Maybe not so more because now uh, in universities today, they don't say, well, this is a great book to be studied. They say, this is a hateful book. And so we're not going to give you a class in the Bible at the University of Redlands or something like that. Or uh, We're not going to give you a class in the Bible because we believe that it actually teaches hate speech. Or at least that's what our culture is, is saying. But it used to be that the world would look at the purpose of the Bible as being a, a great story uh, about a great teacher. right? And of course, C.S. Lewis uh, put, that, uh, put that view uh, to death, really, but it still keeps coming back uh, in his book, Mere Christianity, where he said, nobody... Uh, nobody should ever call Jesus a great teacher. The purpose of this book is not to say you need to look to Jesus. Well, he's a great teacher to be modeled and exampled after because, um, uh, Lewis says, no one who is a great teacher would ever make the claims uh, that Jesus makes in this book. You know, I had some great teachers uh, when I was uh, growing up. I remember uh, Mrs. Lenters in grade three. Uh, I remember Mrs. Balt of grade two. Uh, I remember Mr. King in grade seven. I don't know if I'd call him a great teacher, but he was a great disciplinarian. Um, he had that, ooh, he had a, mm, he had a big stick. Um, and uh, great teachers. And uh, I love some of those. So when Miss, if Mrs. Lenters comes into the class in grade three, and, um, you know, she comes into that class, and, um, and she said, okay, class, today I want you to know that, um, that I am the Easter Bunny, you know? I would have said, what? Yeah, no. No, she wouldn't have said that. She's a great teacher. And if she would have said she's the Easter Bunny, uh, well, then, um, no, we would have thought she was, she was crazy if she meant it, you see. That's what Lewis was saying, that either Jesus was a liar uh, or he was deluded, he was insane, uh, or, in fact, he was who he claimed to be as a great teacher, that is, the Son of of God, but don't ever say he's just, and that's what the world would say. Maybe that's what some professing Christians think. The Bible's good for, well, it's a good, it's a good teacher, and I can live a moral life if I follow these things. The world might also say, well, it's a story made up by the early church. And uh, what we need to do is take that Bible and take out all the supernatural things in reference to Jesus and just get at the real historical Jesus, just Jesus the man. And of course, the problem with that is, is that if you remove all the supernatural things in the life of Jesus, uh, you don't have a Jesus left. It could be kind of like saying, um, you know, I really want to get to the heart of what ice cream is all about. So let's take out, let's take out all the sweetness of ice cream to get to the root of ice cream. Well, if you take out all the sweetness of ice cream, uh, you got nothing left, right? Because that's, that's what it is, you know? That's what the world says. Um, John says something different about why this book. This book's given 
these signs about Jesus are given, that you would believe something, that I would believe something about the person of Jesus. Jesus himself gets at it in Luke 19, as you know. Luke 19, 18. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, "Mm, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, Jesus said to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered the Christ of of God. It's always about him. You know, the reason that, um, you know, the great majority of these folks, these thousands of folks that went to the Puritan conference this past week, uh, the reason that they love church history, the reason they love the reformers, and the reason they love uh, the Puritans is not for love of the Puritans themselves, uh, but they love the reformers, they love a Calvin, they love a Luther, they love a, a John Owen or something like that, not for who they are in themselves, but for what, uh, what God used these men uh, to, to, to write about in drawing others to Jesus. And in, in, in giving in others, as you read through the, the works that these men wrote, uh, a love for God, a love for His Word, uh, and a, a, clear, a clear focus uh, on the person of Jesus Christ. Now, our trouble is, um, our trouble is, of course, we tend to make the focus of our faith or our church membership or our professed Christianity something else. Than Jesus. Calvin, John Calvin, uh, wrote a wonderful little book called An Inventory of Relics. And he was writing about the, the problems of idolatry in the church in which the Lord had raised him up. And you might, this might sound familiar to you. Somewhere in there, he writes about how, you know, if you, if you gathered all the uh, purported bones of the apostles that different Catholic churches were saying they had, that you'd, oh, Calvin said, you'd actually have four bodies of every apostle. Isn't that interesting? Or he said, um, you know, if you took all the wood from the cross that is purportedly uh, in all these Catholic churches, uh, you would be able to have a whole forest of trees because there's so many uh, claims to having the wood from the cross. But this is what he says. The first abuse, and as it were, beginning of the evil, was that when Christ ought to have been sought in his word, sacraments, and spiritual influences, the world, after its want, clung to his clung to his garments, his vests, and swaddling clothes. And thus overlooking, here he says, the principal matter, that is Jesus himself, followed only its accessories. The same course, he says, was pursued in regard to the apostles and martyrs and other saints. For when the duty was to meditate diligently on their lives that is, on their love for God and Christ, and engage in imitating them. Instead, he says, men made it their whole study to contemplate and lay up, as it were, in a treasury, their bones and their shirts and their girdles uh, and their caps and their similar trifles. You see what he's saying? Instead of, uh, instead of in, the, in, the, in the Catholic Church of the 16th century, treasuring Christ as he's revealed in his word, instead, they were treasuring up his accessories, stuff he wore, you know, and missed um, what John is saying the whole book's written for, that we would believe in him, 
right? That we would love, that we would love Him. We're reminded of how this can happen, even in a uh, in a, a, a religious person's life, a professing uh, believer's uh, life. Uh, when Jesus confronts in John chapter five, the Jews who had gathered around Him, and this is what He says in John five thirty seven, and and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. Listen to what he says. For you do not believe the one whom he sent. And then he says this. You know these words. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them, that is in them themselves, you have eternal life. And it is they, says Jesus, that bear witness or a sign to me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life, says Jesus. It's possible to love the Bible and miss the whole point of the book. One of the speakers this past week was talking about how in the, in the 17th century, the Puritans, of course, were seeking to continue to reform the Anglican church, the Church of England, that it would be more pure according to the Word of God and not have leftover Catholicism left in its worship and liturgy and so forth. And, uh, and one of the speakers was saying, well, it's possible you go, you go to a Catholic church, you go to an Anglican church, and you might have beautiful Bibles, and you'd have uh, gilded gold on the edge of these Bibles, and you'd have maybe priests kissing the Bible, you know, kissing the Bible, walking, maybe you've seen this, walking the Bible into the place of worship. And the Bible is given all sorts of wonderful uh, respect. And then the speaker said, but you know what happens after they do that? Uh, they close it and put it away, <laughs> you know. And so it's possible to give all sorts of attention to the book uh, while ignoring uh, the one of whom the book speaks. And John says, why did God use these signs? Uh, by means of them, says Calvin, the Lord arouses men to contemplate his power. His power. What do these signs convince us of regarding the person of Jesus, says John? Well, that he is the Christ. Now, it means simply this. The word Christ is the, uh, the, the word for anointed one. means Messiah. And in the Old Testament, you'll remember who was anointed. Well, you had prophets, you had priests, and you had kings. And so John is simply saying that these signs are given that, that folks can recognize in Jesus the anointed one that is simply the one uh, that the whole Old Testament and all God's people uh, have been looking forward to coming. You know, the great prophet uh, greater than Moses, you know, the, the great high priest and the great king, you know, whose kingdom will never end. Ah, that's the whole point, to see in Jesus the long-awaited-for anointed one. My prophet, he reveals God's truth to me. Uh, he is God's priest. He is the only, Bible says, mediator between God and men, only. And he is the king. That is, he has all, all rule and authority and power. As we read about, of course, in the Great Commission where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the Christ and he is the Son of God. That is, he is the only begotten Son. It speaks of his divinity. This book is written, John says, these signs are given so that you would believe Christ is the long-awaited one. Everything, in other words, you've been longing for, 
is in him. And you know that he's not just another man, but he is the son of God, that the fullness of deity, as the Bible says, dwells in him. These are why these signs are given. This is why you have the Bible. This is why I have the book, that I might see the signs by God's grace and recognize in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Now, that's important, of course, because then the, John's telling us, listen, the Bible's not written, the book's not given, so that you would be entertained or that uh, you would be bored or that you'd be just intellectually stimulated or that you'd have your curiosity piqued or that you'd have seven uh, tips for healthy living, uh, but that you would believe uh, in Jesus and you'd be able to say with Thomas, who said earlier in the Gospel of John there, my Lord and my God. That's so important, right? Because the object of saving faith, we confess, uh, is not a, a doctrine about Jesus, but the object of your faith is Jesus himself. It is Jesus in his person. The Bible talks about believing into Jesus. When the, uh, the jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But that doesn't mean believe something about Jesus and you will be saved. No, it means believe in Jesus himself, that he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. So, that's the why. We got the what? The signs. We got the why, so that we would believe He's the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, What's the wherefore? To what end? Well, this, of course, is the promise of God. But these are written, says John. These signs. We don't have all of them, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, and that by Uh, believing Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you may have life in his name. Now, of course, in many ways, this is, right, this is the very offense of the gospel. You say, well, offense of the gospel? How is that the offense of the gospel? Well, because John is saying uh, that, um, that apart from you and I putting our faith and trust and hope In Jesus Christ, uh, as that Messiah, as the Son of God, uh, unless that is true of me, I have no life. And my situation is, I am yet in death, in darkness. That's what Paul says in Ephesians, you remember Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so when John says, you know, these signs are given, the whole point of the book is this, that you would believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, so that by believing in him, you would have life. You know, John is saying, without him, there is no life. You know, it's really amazing that earlier in the Gospel of John, John describes eternal life um, this way. This is what Jesus is praying. He's praying to the Father. And, uh, and Jesus says this in John 17, 3. And this is, says Jesus, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's pretty amazing, you know, the Bible saying that eternal life, life itself, life that knows no end, eternal in the sense of uh, never-ending, to be sure, uh, but also eternal life in the sense of this is a life that, that, that raises us, as it were, from the dead uh, so that we, uh, we never die again. You know, when, um, when Jesus was speaking to Martha about the death of her brother Lazarus, remember this, Martha said to him, I know that he, that's Lazarus, will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then he said this, and everyone who lives and believes in me, this is what John is saying the whole book's about, and believes in me shall never die. Now, how could Jesus say to Martha... Uh, that um, whoever lives and then believes in me shall never die. Well, the only way uh, that Jesus could say that is if when you believe in Jesus, that somehow now, as you believe in him, you are given eternal life, a life that, in fact, as Jesus says, knows no death. It begins now. According to Jesus, you don't wait for heaven to enjoy eternal life. The life we have in Jesus, according to him, begins now. Because if you live and believe in him now, says Jesus, you shall never die. Oh, yes, your body and my body uh, will be laid in the grave. Uh, But if you believe in Jesus, that eternal life that you have with him, knowing God, knowing Christ, uh, union and communion with him, you have that now, says Jesus, and that will never end. It will never die. Your life is secure with him. So when we open the book, according to John, we are confronted with the person and the work of Jesus. And John says it's all been given, all been written. Uh, Notice how he puts that, right? Verse 31. So that you, so that you, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Bible says, John says, this life is for you. You're reading this book, you're hearing this, says John, it's for you. That you would see the signs. Uh, that you would believe in Jesus, and that you would have life in his name. It's for, it's for the you who is the, um, who is the convicted sinner, right? Burdened by guilt and shame, feeling the condemnation and sentence of death. John says, this is for you, life through Jesus. It's for the indifferent churchgoer who has a conscience deadened maybe by years of having the gospel go in one ear and out the other. Lacking purpose, lacking meaning, lacking joy in life, seeking life everywhere else, but in the, in the person whom the Bible says this is all about, and in the only one who can give life, this is for you. It's for the, uh, the hardened unbeliever 
living in a culture of death and embracing death and encouraging the death of the elderly and the death of the unborn. This is for you, says John. Life through Jesus. This is for the professing believer who loves God but is often uh, distracted by other things from what matters most and what this book is all about, that we would have life in His name. Wrote Mark Johnston, in a world in which for many, life is what you make it. The promise of the gospel is of a life that consists of what Christ can make it. Given the brokenness and emptiness of life, he says, here is the greatest reason to believe in the Christ of the gospel. Well, of course, this past week, uh, it was all about the Puritans at this conference, and so I wouldn't be uh, doing justice to our time together if I didn't leave us uh, with some questions from the American Puritan Jonathan Edwards as we think about these verses from John. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. What are you afraid of? that you dare not venture your soul upon Christ? Are you afraid that he cannot save you, that he is not strong enough to conquer the enemies of your soul? Are you afraid that he will not be willing to stoop so low as to take any gracious notice of you? What is there that you can desire should be in a Savior that is not in Christ? What excellency is there wanting? What is there that is great or good? What is adorable or endearing? Or what can you think of that would be encouraging? Oh, this is great. What can you think of that would be encouraging, which is not to be found in the person of Christ? Is there anything, Edwards is saying, is there anything that you really want for your life that you don't find in Jesus? Really? Has not Christ, he says, been made low enough for you? Has he not suffered enough? Can you think or conceive, says Edwards, of greater things than Christ has done? Remember what the Bible says? Mm, He did many other signs. Did he not do enough for you? Or for me, says Edwards. And would you desire that a Savior should suffer more than Christ has suffered for sinners, our prophet, our king, and, and our priest? What is there wanting? Or what would you add if you could to make him more fit to be your Savior? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? If we do not put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, says Edwards, um, well, what, um, what more could we possibly imagine a Savior would be than what we find? in the blessed word of God. And whatever book you read, uh, whatever uh, book of theology you read, or Puritan you read, or Reformer uh, you read, the only reason you want to read them is the more they bring you to see the glory and the wonder of who this Jesus is for us. And that when we put our faith and trust in him, the Bible says you find life in him. May that be true of each of us here for God's glory and for our good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this book. We thank you that we have your, your very word. Oh Lord, our mind uh, boggles at the thought 
that there were many more signs that Jesus did. Many more words. Many more encounters with sinners. Many more rebukes of hypocrites. Uh, many more uh, times where, where Jesus spoke to the downtrodden and the discouraged and the broken and welcomed them into his presence. But these have been written, oh, and they are sufficient for us to see that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one longed for of old, who speaks the truth, who offers his own life in our place as the only mediator between God and men, and who now rules and reigns not only over the world as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but he rules and reigns in our life in our heart, in our marriage, and in your church. And that he is the one through whom we ourselves find life in communion with you, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. May it be true of us, Lord, and and may we indeed read good books that draw us uh, into this vision of a glorious Savior who is Christ, the Lord. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.